This episode is sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group, serving Britain's communities and households for more than 250 years. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today is a born and bred Londoner, running for the most important job in the city. After leaving school at 18, she worked in a garage, but struggled to get into technical college as a woman. She was later a business owner, running a beauty salon and hairdressing business. She's been involved in politics for almost 20 years, starting out first as a councillor in Harrow. She later ran the Conservative Group before leading the council itself. In 2017, she joined the General London Authority, replacing Kemi Badenoch. Within two years, she was running the Conservative Group there too. Her rise in Tory politics continues, as this year she was selected to be the Conservative candidate for the 2024 London mayoral election. Known for her direct style, my guest today is Susan Hall. Hello. Susan, thank you so much for joining on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. Now, we always begin with the same question, which is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? I mentioned the introduction, you're a born and bred Londoner. Yeah, it was in parts, that's for sure. I was... uh, Born in Kingsbury, which is Northwest Nine, and then I moved, or my parents moved to Harrow, where I've lived ever since. Very boring, I'm afraid. I haven't gone very far, but uh, I've stayed in Harrow. I love it in Harrow, uh, so that's where I've stayed. I've moved around Harrow, but uh, I've stayed there. So yes. And what were you like at school? Were you particularly academic? Were you very practical? What was your experience? Oh, Katie, I was so (laughs) stroppy. That's why we wanted you on the podcast. (laughs) Someone say ballsy. <laughs> Definitely ballsy, which got me into terrible trouble. Very, I would ask questions all the time and then debate whether it the answers were right or not. I mean, I should have known better because at the end of the day, teachers will definitely have the upper hand. But uh, yeah. Did you get into much trouble now? Oh, yeah, quite a lot. Are we talking like detentions and things or... I often taught myself out of those. Uh, that, that was all right. I was thrown out the guides for not singing their dib dib dig song or whatever it was. But um, no, school was. That's, uh, that's quite something to be thrown out of guides. Yes, yeah. yes, I guess it was. But you made it through brownies. No, I don't think I did that. I think I went for a few times to guides with a friend of mine that was a very serious guider. But I thought the songs were silly, which of course they weren't, but that it wasn't cool in my silly opinion. So I didn't go back again. Um, now, you left school at 18 and started to work in your father's garage. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. And did you think about other careers or was that what you wanted to do? You know, sometimes you drift into things, don't you? I always had a fascination for how things worked. And um, my dad had died by then. But when I was much, much younger, he used to teach me to strip down the engines of the lawnmower and that sort of thing and I lost so many watches because I took them apart and then couldn't get them back together again you know how you do well perhaps you don't but anyway I used to find that you very sound a interesting. bit more curious than me in terms of <laughs> <laughs> curiosity is fine but when you take things apart you really should remember how they go back together again and I suppose at this point had in your kind of childhood time at school moving to the job started to think very politically from a young age do you think about political parties I certainly didn't intend to be a politician that didn't come into it. I was interested because my father was interested. He he was one of 13, so he really had to work very hard to sort of claw himself out of quite a, a poor home. And he believed that the harder you work, the more you can achieve. And 
you should be able to make a better life for your children. And that was impressed upon me quite strongly from an early age. And then, of course, I watched Tebbit and Thatcher and became interested. I was fascinated that she managed to make it in a what I had always seen in those days as a man's world. And she had to be very tough. And I found that very interesting. But in the meantime, I sort of got married, had children, ran a business. I would never have gone into politics seriously while I had young children because I was aware it just consumes your life. So would it be fair to say you felt that you were quite a conservative quite early on? Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And then you're working in your father's garage, but were there limits at that point in terms of what you were allowed to do as a woman? Oh, yes, you couldn't. Yeah. They could say, because you're a female, you can't go on a, a full engineering course, a mechanical engineering course. And things were very different in those days. But that's all right. You can still learn. You can still... I worked in the reception diagnosing faults and uh, putting small things right. And because in those days as well, you didn't have diagnostic machines like you do now. It was a very different world to the one it is now. And then you later went on to set up your own business. Yeah. Is that correct? So what inspired you to do that? And (laughs) were there there any particular mistakes early on? Uh, Oh, gosh, (laughs) we all make mistakes through life, don't we? And that's what we learn by. But no, I got married to a hairdresser and we'd only been married a short while. And he said what he'd really like to do is have his own business. And by his own admission, he's not very good with money. And I said, well, okay, but I will run the books. There's no question. He was very happy with that. So we bought a salon or bought the lease of a salon and I started running the business side. And then when things were going really well, but it was quite arduous, I used to work on a Saturday there as well. Things were going well. So I decided to stop working in the garage and start helping out in the hairdressers. So you can manage. It was a cultural shock for all of us. (laughs) So very, very different. But that was fine. And then I did learn to do bits and pieces of um, hairdressing. Uh, But it was the business side of it that I found more interesting and consuming, quite frankly. Does that mean during lockdown, you could like cut family members hair? You know, you know, if you if you learn bits of the no, I I never learned to cut hair. (laughs) I would do. I do all the, the like the technical right, perming, right, right. tinting and stuff like that. But in lockdown, no, of course, I was on my own most of the time because I stuck to the rules religiously. So I was on my own. So I couldn't have done anything anyway. No, I was just having flashbacks of when my husband asked me to cut his hair during lockdown. Uh, and then when, he has flashbacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too. Um, <laughs> he, he ended up with what his friends described as a mullet. Um, so. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine. People think that hairdressing is very simple. Let me tell you, hairdressers have got incredible skills, not only with how they deal with hair, but also how they deal with with people because they are with different people all the time. They're on their feet all the time. And anybody who disrespects hairdressers, well, I, they just do not realise they have got very many skills that many people don't understand. Lockdown showed them a certain amount of skills that they clearly have. But actually, when my children were young, but well, sort of 14, 15, I made them work in the shop because it really brought them out of themselves to shampoo clients because they had to make conversation. And actually, it's a very good way of cutting down barriers for young people having to go out there, make conversation with people of all different backgrounds, with all different problems and issues. And it teaches 
young people to be more sociable and to learn the art of um, conversation, quite frankly. No, that makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned your children there and the, that you didn't want to have a career as a politician while you had children. No. So at what point do you start to think? I think it's 2006 you became a councillor. Yeah. Was it dipping your toe in the water? How, how does that come about? I've been the chairman of the traders in Wealdstone where I had my business, I think for about 10 years. I This is my problem. I do like being in charge. I do like making the decisions. And I don't mind if things go wrong, I'll put my hand up and find how to fix it. And really, a progression was to go into politics because I dealt a lot with the council because of things that were going wrong in the the road with where my business was. And uh, I thought, well, if you want to put things right, you've got to be where the decision makers are. And it was that that made me decide to start dipping my toe, if you like. And because the minute I started getting involved, I wanted to be more in control. It's just shocking in a way. But it, you know, I like taking decisions. Lots of people don't. I do. I, I'm happy to take decisions every day. That's why within a couple of years I was deputy leader of the group and then within four years I was leader of the group. So almost, yeah, the, the more you tried it, the more you wanted to do it. Exactly. That's how I am with whatever I do, actually. I suppose just on council politics, I mean, we have a situation, I mean, councils all across the country, but, you know, Croydon recently went bust. Yes. Lots of warnings of more of this to come. What do you think, I suppose maybe it's a bit blunt to say what's happening in all those areas. Do you think it tends to be a management problem or do you think there's a real money problem in terms of councils? There's a bit of both, actually. Um, Funding for councils has been very much restricted because of the lack of funds, quite frankly, but also the administrations in some of these places, you just could cry at times. You've got some situations where if you run a business, it's your money. And if things don't go right, you will probably lose your home. My house was always on the line for the business. So you watch it, you you know, you really watch what's going on and you don't waste money. And that's how I feel when I was leader of Harrow Council. Do not waste taxpayers' money. Unfortunately, not everybody has that same view. It's not their money, so therefore they don't have the drive to think, I've got to save money, is that money well spent, etc. And it's, it's absolutely vital that we do that. I mean, I would treat other people's money, I do treat other people's money, with more care than I treat my own because... You know, if you're in charge of that, it's important that that's what you do. I mentioned in the introduction that when you joined the London Assembly, uh, I think you're taking Kami Badenoch's place. I did. Yes, and she is a former spectator colleague. She is, yes. (laughs) Did she give you much advice? Because we look at where she is, obviously, now. (laughs) She's doing all right. Oh, she's doing very well. I really like Kemi. She certainly did give me some advice, and I'm sorry, but I can't repeat it. But she was 100% (laughs) correct, let me tell you. (laughs) That's very intriguing. Yes, okay. I'm One, sure, and I'm absolutely okay. not going to repeat we'll it. We'll get some wine out later. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, how did you find the London Assembly? Was it a bit different, I suppose, you know, from being a you know, leader of a council, those parts? What was the shift in terms of... It's very, very different because I know Harrow inside out because I've always lived there and I've been a councillor there now for nearly 18 years. So I know it and I know how everything works. Suddenly... I was a London-wide member and you know how big London is, but you it is vast and all the boroughs have got different issues and 
everything works slightly differently. Inner London is so different to outer London, which is why Sadiq Khan just does not get why people in outer London are so against the Eulos expansion. It's because he doesn't understand. I think there's something like 200 farms in London and they're in mainly in the outer London. So to think that people can survive without a car in some of the outer London boroughs is ludicrous. But London is very, very different. And a mayor should understand that. You cannot compare living in central London with living in the outskirts of London. It's so different. And that's why there's this furor now about this dreadful tax on the poorest, let's face it. Now, you mentioned the mayoral campaign. So just to bring listeners up to speed, of course. Now, what went through your mind? Did you have to think much about putting yourself forward? Did you know you wanted to do it? What was the moment when you thought, actually, I'm going to run to be London mayor? Do you know, it's it's daft, really, because, you know, when you look at a job and you think that is the best political job in the country, because when you're made mayor, you've got it for four years. And we can see from politics in the last few years, you you just don't know what's around the corner. But with the London mayoralty, you know, more stability than prime minister. uh, Yes. (laughs) Uh, And so you can have some strategies in place that can take you through to the four years and know that if you work really hard towards them, nobody's going to set you off course because you can make those decisions to make the difference and you've got four years to do that. So I've always looked at the job and thought, that is the ideal job. But it actually took Nikki Aitken, um, the MP in For the constituency we're in, yeah. Exactly. For her to ring me up and say, Susan, are you going to put your name in? And I said, well, I wasn't going to. And she said... That's stupid. You must put your name in. And of course, once I did, I thought, yeah, why why did I not think that through? Because it's the ideal job. And it's certainly something I would absolutely love to be doing. How have you found the campaign so far? So you were selected. One of your potential Tory rivals for the role had to step down. Um, You'd be the other. And have you had a lot more scrutiny than you're used to previously? What was the shift, I suppose, from, you know, going for it to to being the Tory candidate? Well, yes, the scrutiny is on a different level. And clearly you do things before you're ever in a position like this, that if you ever thought you'd be in that position, you'd maybe stop and think about it. I mean, I've always been a serial tweeter and clearly gone through and liked things on a whim. Well, of course, somebody's gone through all of those. And some of them, if I look at now, I'd say, well, I'm, I'm sure I didn't do that. Well, I must have done. But the, yeah, the point is... Yeah. Is that things, I think it's liking tweets to Trump or yeah, Liz Truss. You know, just you some just of those type of things. Yeah, just you just don't. Sense, yeah. I mean... Most of your listeners, I'm sure, will think if they think about it and they are tweeters or exes, whatever one calls yeah, you Yeah, I don't know No, I really don't like <laughs> the sound of exes, actually. Yes, that's right. You just flick through and like things without any great thought to it. Well, had I ever thought that I'd have been in the position I'm in now, of course I would have thought about it, but I didn't at the time. Which is an interesting point because I do think lots of people on social media you don't realise how it's going to look in five, ten years. And it's a moment in the day. So some of the things you've liked, you don't think are representative of your... No, you, you, know, you way just, you let's face it, you don't even think about it sometimes. Yeah. I mean, clearly now. Or had I sort of four or five years or whatever ago thought I could be in this position, I might have thought differently. But, you know, you are what you are. You do what you do. Sometimes you look back and think, no, I shouldn't have done that. But we're all human. 
It's funny, I was talking to a load of politics students in a school in Highgate and one of them brought up something to do with my social media and I said, yeah, I, I wouldn't do that now and I made a mistake. So she looked at me and I so I said to the whole class, any of you that can say you have never made a mistake, can you put your hand up? And of course, none of them put their hand up because the reality is all human beings make mistakes and most human beings, thank goodness for their sake, they're not under the sort of scrutiny that somebody going for my position is. Yeah, scrutiny is a good thing in politics, but I suppose one of the risks is if everyone feels as though something they've had on social media a long time is going to be brought up, it might put off. some, ca- And then you're going to end up yeah. with some very, well, you know, candidates haven't really, you know. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, yeah. if you want a Londoner that is a normal human being that does make mistakes, that does do these things, then you've got to think about what you want. Or if you want somebody that's super duper clean and has, in as much as they've never done anything on social media, never done interviews, I've done hundreds and hundreds over my time and never done anything, then take a view on that. But, you know. Now, I want to talk about your campaign, the areas you're focusing on, but just one thing on that first I just wondered was just, obviously, we're heading into the year of your election, yes. May, yeah. and then we've also got the presidential election in November. Oh, gosh, yes, uh, we yeah, have. Yeah. Exactly. Where do you stand on Donald Trump now? Do you think he's the oh, better dear. of the two candidates? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, both of them... Oh. Well, but I think lots of people, I mean, we've got a column in the Spectator Christmas issues this week saying it's not much of a choice for voters in the sense neither well, are I'm kind of there. But let's face it, it's their business. We wouldn't like it if they interfered with what we do, which is why I fell out. Well, I've, I'm always falling out with Sadiq Khan, but he made fun of Donald Trump. And I got cross at the time more because it's for the Americans to choose who they want. It is not for us to make that decision. And I think it's wrong. Whoever is in charge of America in the next few years, if I'm lucky and honoured enough to be the mayor of London, whoever it is, they will be invited and treated with respect because they will be the um, candidate that the Americans have chosen for their president. And I suppose vice versa, and it's the final thing I want to talk about women's safety, do you think that the same applies in the sense it's not for the US president to attack a UK politician. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So Mind your own business is what yeah. I would say. <laughs> um, now, let's talk about some of the focuses of your campaign. Yeah. I want to talk about the roads, but I also want to talk about women's safety. Is that something you feel has been lacking so far and you can bring something new to? Well, absolutely, because as a woman, I know I don't feel safe in London. Do you feel safe in London? <laughs> I feel fairly safe, but I think it, everyone has different experiences. Do you know what I mean? And also I think it, just because one person can feel safe doesn't mean, you know, we've no. all had bad experiences. Yeah. You know, we've all had uncomfortable moments and so forth. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's funny. One of my friends said that he hadn't stopped to think about it, but then he often goes to the pub on a Friday night and sort of staggers home. And he said, I guess you as a female couldn't do that. I said, no, women absolutely couldn't do that. And if you're walking along the street at night and it's dark and somebody walks behind you and, you know, 99.9% of the time, that's going to be absolutely fine. Of course it is. I walk behind people. You know, it happens. But as a female, very often you think, I wonder who that is. I wonder if it's okay. And women do tend to hold their keys in their hands. I know lots of young people that do with the sharp bit, just in case. We shouldn't feel like that in our city. And more and more people are feeling 
more and more unsafe and we've got to do something. We've got to look after women's spaces in London as well, is my view. And I think as a woman, I can really speak to that because I know, I understand. And on, I suppose, how you do that, is that neighbourhood policing? Is it the fact, do you think the Met is focusing on the wrong things right now? Some say, you know, there's too much focus on... I won't use the W word, woke is too loaded. Uh, Well, it's it's pretty right, though. Hurty words is one way of putting it. Tweeting about Uh, what the uh, meaning uh, of uh, jihad is, depending uh, who says it and so forth. Yeah, I mean, we've got to get back to having more boots on the streets, if you like. We've got to get back to a proper safer neighbourhood model, which is still in place, but we've got to get those police officers back in their wards. I mean, at the moment, because of the strategy around police stations, so many of police officers, all their equipment is in a place a way away from their ward they're supposed to be looking after or the area they're supposed to be looking after. We've got to address that. I found £200 million in Sadiq Khan's budget, in the mayoral budget, that I would put straight into the Metropolitan Police. And people need to understand the mayor has a £21 billion budget. So he's always going off to the government saying, I haven't got enough money, etc. It's important that people understand it's a £21 billion budget. So it's a massive budget and it needs to be looked after properly. I suppose in terms of what Sadiq Khan has done on women's safety, um, you've got the mate campaign, you've got the stop (sighs) staring campaign, which I think is supposed to, you know, be aimed at that. Would you keep either of those? Um, I do. Yes, I can see you're laughing. I think to say, oh, mate, is... um, not effective, I would say, but um, <laughs> better to have police. Uh, <laughs> I think so, don't you? Call me old fashioned, but mate or police on the streets. I think we'd all go for police on the streets every time and stop staring. Do you think that campaign has done anything good? Or? <laughs> oh dear, no. I th- let let's get back to proper policing. Let's start having more confidence in our police. Police. The attitude towards police, the um, confidence levels of the public to the police now is so low. And that has dropped since 2017, which just happens to be when Sadiq Khan came in. Trust and confidence has to be brought back for everybody's sake. And, you know, 99.9% of police officers are damn good people. They really are. They'll run towards danger where we'll all run away. And they've had a very difficult time. We should all support them. I will always support the police. I want to be part of the solution. And we've got to find solutions for policing in London. Now, you mentioned earlier ultra-low emission zones. and Yes, I did. <laughs> We clearly had the Uxbridge by-election, yeah. one of the few by-elections these days that the Tory party managed to win, yeah. or at least you know, hold as a as a Tory seat. And I think it's led to lots of talk after that, that, you know, I think there was perhaps a general consensus that this was Sadiq Khan's mayoral election to win, going through a third term, even though that's never been done in the history of London mayoral races. Do you see, I think, I suppose, where your voters are is mainly outer London or is that where you think you have more of an edge over city come because that's where most people are being affected by this right now? If for anybody to think this is a one policy campaign, it's very wrong. As I said to you before, London is very, very different. In outer London, people are absolutely incensed by the ultra-low emission zone. They really are. But not only are they concerned about that, lots of Londoners have become to realise that he'll go from the ULES 
to paper mile because that's what all the cameras are up there for. Now, he always told Londoners in committees, etc., that he'd never bring in the ultra-low emission zone to the outskirts of London. Well, because he lied about that. That's exactly what he's done. He's been telling people that he won't bring in paper mile. He's got a whole department working on it. It's even got a name, this project. Of course he will. Now, he can say he won't do it, but if he wins the mayoral election in May, and I sincerely hope he won't, that's exactly what he'll do. And even if he does a consultation, we know he'll ignore it because he ignored, he ignored the ULO's expansion consultation. It's what he wants to do. He has got an absolute war on the motorists. If you look at all of the things he's putting in place, it's against motorists. If you look at the 30 mile an hour zone taken to 20 on places like the Finchley Road, utterly ludicrous. If you look at the cycle lane on Park Lane, it's causing nothing but gridlock. Utterly ludicrous. That's another virtue signalling thing that he's done there because the park right next door has got a cycle lane in it. He would have us all walking if he could. It's some sort of ideology of his. But in the meantime, motorists are suffering big time. The LTNs that are in might be nice for the people that live in them, but everyone else is suffering because they're gridlocking our city. And if you think of our poor black cab drivers, they are having to go miles extra in order to get somebody back to where they belong. They are all equipped to take wheelchairs. and We must look after disabled Londoners far more than we do. Well, they can't even deliver them home if they live within a low-traffic neighbourhood zone. So, you know, that isn't within the mayor's remit to be able to just rip them all out, because I certainly would. It's within the council's job, but I would do everything I could to help residents that are fed up with the LTNs. And believe you me, they are. They're just wrecking traffic in London. Do you drive around London lots? Yes, I do. Yeah. What type of car do you drive? A Fiat. And it is ULES compliant. You would cancel ULES, is that correct, in terms of ULES London? expansion. Yeah, the expansion. One. Yes. So on day one, without doubt, is a promise. It does bring in a fair amount of money, yes. uh, or is estimated to. So how would you deal with that as a shortfall in terms of, you know, is that going to mean that you're limited in other things you can do? To an extent, it's £200 million is in the budget. That's off the back of the poorest Londoners. It really is. It's a diminishing amount but nevertheless it it would have to be found but you know what it must be found because it's the poorest Londoners that are paying that it's an utter disgrace nobody no mayor should ever put a policy in that will affect the poorest Londoners the most and that's exactly what this is it's a tax grab on that you know City Can has tried to do some things to alleviate the pressure on the poorest Londoners following criticism but when it comes to I imagine if we're imagining the Susan Hall mayorality you're in City Hall yep how are you going to liberate the roads then? So you're going to do some of those things to try and cancel that? Uh, yeah, ULO's expansion cancelled yeah. on day one. As soon as I could, I'd be removing cycle lanes like the one on Park Lane. So that's the newest cycle lane should remove? Or... Sorry? So, so is that more recent ones? The, or the, just should... the, the yeah. big one on yeah. this Park Lane that yeah. is causing gridlock all the yeah. way down. And there are other areas. I talked to black cabbies and they will tell us exactly which areas are causing the most problems. I would enable the councils, if they want to to remove the LTNs because there's a stop on some of them from TFL so that would be done as quick as I could and on TFL roads 
where the speed limit has gone from 30 to 20, I'd put that back to 30. One of the problems we've got in the city at the moment is you can be pootling along and suddenly realise you're in a 20 mile zone. So you go down to 20, then suddenly you're back at 30 and then suddenly it'll drop again or it won't or it'll go up to 40 on a dual carriageway. You don't know where you are. And then, of course, in the meantime, they're making an absolute fortune out of fines. Again, war on the motorists. It's just to drive in London, you don't know where you are and you don't know where you, when you're going to get anywhere because everything's gridlocked. So a moving city is a successful city. And at the moment, we are not moving. Now, say you win, there is a chance, looking at the general election Westminster intention polls, that sooner or later you could be dealing with a Labour government. Yep. How would you find, do you think, working with a Labour administration? Because when I spoke to Sadiq Khan at Labour conference, he was saying one of the reasons he wanted to win a third term was he was almost sick of having to work with, you know, a different party in central government in terms of the Tories. I thought he'd be able to get a lot more done if it was Labour mayor, Labour government. It doesn't matter who's in government, I will get on with whoever they are. On the basis, I would be there purely to stand up for Londoners with whatever suited London the best. And if you just look at my relationships in uh, City Hall, one of my most favourite members is Len Deval, who's the leader of the Labour group. He and I get on very, very well. You've got to do what is best for Londoners. And actually briefing, when he's given private briefings by the Conservative government he'll go out and brief journalists straight away he cannot be trusted I wouldn't do that whether it was Labour or Conservative you've got to do what is right for Londoners because that is your job two final things I mean you've been seen I think in the past as someone who's been a Boris Johnson supporter over the years yeah how do you think Rishi Sunak is doing he's now just completed almost a year just over a year I think in fact in the job do you think he's doing a good job he works exceptionally hard everybody around him will tell you that he's got a very difficult situation there are many things that have gone wrong in the past we've had wars we've had this terrible virus which has caused all sorts of issues so we must take that into account but I will always support him I'm a very loyal person whoever is our leader I will always support but I will always stand up for Londoners and as mayor of this city my only concern would be for Londoners now the final question is one we ask everyone on this podcast, which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given? <laughs> no. I suspect you've been given lots of bad advice, but you probably ignored it. But that's fine, you can yeah. still say it if you ignored it. <laughs> I can't begin to tell you. And I loved when you were interviewing Rosie and she said about the mansplaining. I get that all the time, but I've used to that and I, you know, you make your own decisions. But the most recent one has to be the advice from the evening standard photographer when he told me to to hit the pose you know with the arms like that and then and then the evening standard only put it on their front page i mean honestly have you i mean what did you think of that picture i thought it was interesting <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you're looking great today <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't use that picture. I wouldn't put it on a dating site. Let me put it that way. (laughs) Thank you, Susan. Thank you for listening. Thank you for inviting me.